together as we sing the doxology, and afterwards the children can, who are heading to children's church, can uh, go go that way. Let's let's sing together. Thoughts, 
sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. One of the hardest parts of a doctor's job is giving people bad news when they don't want or expect to hear it. Uh, over the years, especially when we were living in New Haven, I knew many medical students, residents, nurses, doctors, and I would sometimes ask one of them, what prompted you to enter the medical field? Uh, some would say the hope of meaningful research, developing new treatments to cure diseases and promote wellness. For others, it was the desire to be a caring and compassionate presence uh, with people at the hardest times of their lives. For others, it was a desire to improve the system, the healthcare system as a whole. But I've never heard anyone say, I entered the medical field in order to be the bearer of unwanted bad news on an almost daily basis. And yet, for some medical professionals, that is part of their job. Most people go into medicine to comfort the afflicted in one form or other, but on a regular basis, medical professionals are tasked with afflicting the comfortable, telling patients that the cancer has returned, or the memory loss will only get worse, or your loved one has passed away. And it's not just medical professionals who are tasked with afflicting the comfortable. If you work in HR, sometimes you have to fire people. If you're a teacher, sometimes you might need to give a failing grade. If you're a quality inspector, you might need to reject a product that your own company just produced a whole bunch of. None of those tasks are pleasant, but they're all necessary because refusing to ever afflict the comfortable can have devastating consequences. If you don't fire the dishonest employee, all the good employees might leave and the company might fold. Or if the doctor tells the patient's family, all will be fine, and then the patient dies that night, the doctor has not only lost a patient, which was probably inevitable, but they've also lost the family's trust, which was not inevitable. You see, in this broken world that we live in, sometimes afflicting the comfortable is as important as comforting the afflicted. And what we see in Jesus' earthly ministry is that Jesus did both. Last week we saw uh, when Jesus walked on the water and met his disciples and it was the middle of the night. They'd been rowing for several hours against uh, a headwind that was blowing them off course. And he said to them, take heart. I'm here. Don't be afraid. And several times throughout the Bible, God says something like that to his people. Don't be afraid because I am with you. What a wonderful word of comfort. And we love those words of comfort especially when we're going through hard times when we feel afflicted. But here, in today's passage, we see Jesus afflicting the comfortable. He's interacting with some of the most prominent religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes who were scholars of his day. They had come all the way from Jerusalem. So a modern equivalent might be a delegation of policymakers coming from Washington, D.C., or a council of professors from Ivy League universities. Uh, these people were widely respected, highly trained, they were confident, they were comfortable, they were secure, they were probably a little intimidating to everybody else. 
They weren't coming to Jesus in despair and looking for hope. They weren't coming to Jesus weary and longing for rest. They weren't coming to Jesus saying, we're ignorant, we need your guidance. No, they were coming to Jesus to evaluate him and to see if Jesus and his disciples lived up to their standards. So verse 5, they asked Jesus a question, which is really an accusation. Why don't your disciples walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? Now at one level, if that's the only accusation, the Pharisees could throw at Jesus and his disciples uh, that they, some of them didn't wash their hands properly before eating. Well, there are a lot worse things that one could be accused of. But Jesus wasn't taken aback. Jesus wasn't intimidated by these elite religious scholars. He didn't apologize for his disciples' behavior. Instead, he told the Pharisees two things that they were certainly not wanting to hear and probably not expecting to hear. He told these comfortable, confident, secure, and successful men that they were, spiritually speaking, in deep trouble. So this morning I want us to consider how Jesus afflicted these comfortable Pharisees. And I also want us to consider how we too might need to be not only comforted by Jesus' words, but even afflicted, challenged, awakened, provoked. This passage is sort of supposed to be at least a little bit unsettling to us. Now, Jesus' response to the Pharisees and scribes has two parts, so we'll look at each of them in turn. Number one, verses 6 to 13, Jesus challenged human traditions that undermined the word of God. And second, Jesus exposed inner impurity underneath outward cleanliness. Verses 14 to 23. So we'll look at each of those themes in turn. First, Jesus challenged human traditions that were undermining God's word. Uh, notice that Jesus responded to the Pharisees' question in verse 5 by turning it back on them, right? First half of their question is, why don't your disciples follow, walk according to the tradition of the elders? And Jesus' basic response is, why aren't you walking according to the word of God? He didn't ignore the Pharisees' question, but he indicated that the Pharisees had a far bigger problem. In fact, he called them hypocrites. Now, when Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites, he didn't mean that they were insincere or just putting on a show and lacking any seriousness. No, the Pharisees were actually some of the most committed and dedicated people in Jewish society. Uh, they were deeply committed to their principles. Uh, so there were several different Jewish groups in Jesus' time, uh, the Pharisees, uh, believed in the entire Old Testament, the, the law and the prophets. Uh, one of the other groups, the Sadducees, only believed in the first five books, but the Pharisees said, no, we, have, we believe the whole thing. Uh, the Pharisees uh, were uh, also believed in uh, the coming judgment and bodily resurrection. Again, unlike the Sadducees, who thought that there was no such thing as life after death. So the Pharisees were what we might call theologically orthodox. Right? And uh, Bible believers. They were also culturally engaged, so they were involved in their society and tried to make a positive difference in their society, unlike another group, the Essenes, who went and literally went up to the top of a cliff overlooking the, the Dead Sea in the middle of the desert and lived all by themselves up there. So the Pharisees weren't separatists who did that. They were involved and engaged in society, 
And they were also careful about their political loyalties. Again, there's another group called the Herodians, which were basically completely loyal to the ruling dynasty, completely jumped on that bandwagon, and the Pharisees sort of were more cautious. So in many ways, uh, the Pharisees were uh, what many of us might want to be in some of these ways. Bible-believing people, theologically orthodox people, culturally engaged people, morally upstanding people, and yet Jesus challenged the Pharisees and said, you are in deep trouble. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So three times, verse 8, verse 9, and verse 13, Jesus accused the Pharisees of leaving, rejecting, and making void the commandment of God, and instead holding, establishing, and handing down their tradition. And in verse 10 through 12, Jesus points to a particular example of this, the practice of Corban. Now, probably most of us have never heard of Corban, and Mark knew that his readers probably hadn't heard of it too. So there's actually a few indications in this passage that Mark was writing to people who lived far from uh, Israel, Palestine, where Jesus had, had lived and conducted his ministry. Because if you notice, there's a few parenthetical comments. So verses 3 and 4 are sort of an explanation of some of the Pharisees' traditions. Verse 11, uh, Mark explains what this word Corban means. It was an Aramaic word. He explains what that word means, given to God. And then in verse 19, uh, Mark includes the comment, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. So it's interesting because in this passage we see one of the clearest indications that Mark is writing to people who had become believers in Jesus, but they lived far, far away from Jerusalem. Okay, Perhaps in Rome. He might have been uh, uh, connected with, with the church in Rome. We're not totally sure. So he explains these traditions. Now, Corbin... Uh, was a common practice uh, among the Jews of Jesus' time, and it's very much like the modern practice of deferred giving. Okay, so basically, uh, under the, the laws of Corbin, you could set aside a piece of property as, uh, as Corbin, and the word means sort of dedicated to God, and what that meant is when you die, the property doesn't go to your relatives, it goes to the temple, sort of donated. It's like a charitable donation uh, that's sort of designated in advance. Uh, but in the meantime, you still own it. You can still use it. Uh, now, in itself, that wasn't a bad thing. But Jesus' concern was some people were abusing this practice in order to avoid supporting their elderly and needy parents. Uh, so back in Jesus' day, there was, of course, no Social Security, no Medicare, no pension or retirement plan. So if you became too weak, or too sick to keep on working, and if you didn't, ha or if you were widowed, especially if you were a woman and widowed in those days, uh, you effectively became dependent on your extended family, your kinship network, to provide for your needs, to make sure you're not going to starve, you're not going to go without clothes or shelter or other basic needs. Now, uh, many of us know the fifth of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and mother. And these days, we sort of immediately think that commandment applies to young children living at home with their parents. But in Jesus' day, uh, the primary application of that commandment was seen as uh, that adult children should honor their elderly parents by making sure that they were provided for in their old age, or if they became sick or too weak to carry out their working responsibilities. 
So it wasn't just seen as a command for children, but a command for adults to make sure that their parents didn't end up out on the street, mistreated, etc. Now the problem was, here was the problem. Sometimes a person would go through the legal process of designating some of his property as Corbin, and then he, and he, but he would do it in order to put it out of mom and dad's reach. It was sort of a legal loophole that was sometimes exploited. So he might say, look, I've made this vow to God. This house is dedicated to God, and therefore I can't sell it to provide for you in your old age. And so you'll just have to fend for yourself. And uh, Jesus says the Pharisees wouldn't even let that happen. You see, they took vows very seriously back then, which was not in itself a bad thing. But again, people got in these situations where they say, well, I've made this vow, and therefore I'm going to avoid taking care of the basic needs of my elderly parents who have no other means to support themselves. And Jesus says, this is a big problem because you've created this tradition that is now preventing people from obeying one of the Ten Commandments, one of God's basic requirements. And Jesus says, this is just one example of how your tradition is now preventing people from obeying God's word. Now we might say, how could that happen? How could these Pharisees and scribes who believed so many of the right things, they believed the whole Bible, they had so much knowledge, they studied the Bible more than most other people in their day. How could they get so far off track that they were hindering people from obeying one of the Ten Commandments? Look down at verse 8, 9, and 13 for just a moment. There's sort of a progression in these verses. So verse 8 says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. Verse 9 says, you reject the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And verse 13 says, you make void. That means it's sort of like crossing out the word of God by your tradition that you have not only hold on to, held on to, and established, but handed down. So there's sort of a progression in these verses. From just sort of leaving God's word on the side and holding on to something else, to then establishing something else and handing it down and crossing out the word of God. There's sort of a picture of, there's a gradual progression. Usually this doesn't happen all at once, right? Uh, but sometimes human traditions can sort of gradually take center stage and gradually push God's word out to the margins. And this pattern has happened many times in the history of the church. Uh, you can find many examples of groups that began with love for God's word and love for God uh, and Jesus that have gradually lost their focus and sort of attached themselves to other things. You know, this was uh, the main reason that Martin Luther and others gave for uh, the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. They said in the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church gradually accumulated human traditions that were increasingly undermining the word of God. So back then, you could buy an indulgence, which basically meant you could pay money in advance 
And, and basically they would promise that you would be forgiven for sins that you were intending to commit in the future. Not even things you've already done, but things you're in, sins you're intending to commit in the future. Pay in advance and you'll be free. But if you weren't a priest, you couldn't read, you were forbidden from reading the Bible. Right, I mean, that's just sort of an obvious set of examples, right? Human tradition undermines God's word. Now, the Catholic Church did make some reforms back in the 16th century, and there are many people in the Catholic Church today who know and love Jesus as their Savior and Lord, who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, but I will say that the relationship between Scripture and tradition is still a significant difference in principle between the Catholic Church and Protestant churches. So the Catholic Church says that the scriptures are not enough, that it's also necessary to receive and follow uh, various traditions that the church has developed over time. Protestant churches say no. Uh, they say, uh, Protestant churches say, what we believe must be rooted in the Bible. If we can't find it in the Bible, then that's not something we need to hold on to. And that church leaders are responsible to teach the scriptures and apply the scriptures, but we have no, I have no authority to add anything to the scriptures. Now, we could spend all our time today talking about ways that other Christian denominations or other religious groups might be elevating human traditions above God's word. But if we do that, we will fall into a trap. We can become just like the Pharisees, right? Pointing fingers at everybody else and blind to our own faults. So the first question we need to ask when we look at Jesus' words to the Pharisees is not to look at some other group or some other church and say, hmm, that's where they're going off track. We need to ask ourselves, how am I prone? How are we prone to go off track in this kind of way? In what ways have we elevated our own traditions above the word of God? One person said we must constantly beware lest tradition take the place of truth. You know, think, why did the Pharisees gradually accumulate all these traditions, that some of which ended up undermining God's word? Well, one thing is they started focusing more on what the Bible doesn't say than on what the Bible does clearly say. So they said, you know, the Bible's a helpful starting point. We believe it, but it's not really enough. There are many areas of life where we need to sort of fill in the blanks about the details of how people are supposed to live their lives. We need to make clear rules that everyone can follow because rules make people feel secure and you know, if we make long lists of procedures and regulations, and if people follow our long checklist, then we can assure them that they're on the right track if they just keep all the rules that we lay out for them. So they started focusing more on what the Bible doesn't say than on what the Bible does say. And sometimes we can also be tempted to do that too. You know, think, let's take a moment to think about this question. If we have a difference of opinion with someone else in the church, we need to ask, is this a difference about something that the Bible speaks about or clearly teaches? Or is this just a difference of opinion 
and human tradition. Right? Now, every church has to make many practical decisions. Here are some questions. How should we decorate our building? What style of music should we sing in our worship services? What kind of coffee should we make? I mean, even that, I've even heard of churches where that becomes a controversy, right? What kind of events should we organize? Now, it's fine to have opinions on these matters, and it's fine for a church uh, to have certain traditions. Jesus is not saying that all traditions are bad and that we should embrace chaos and change for change's sake. But Jesus is saying that tradition must never take the place of truth. That we should hold loosely to our human traditions and hold tightly to God's word and not get attached to our own opinions about sort of secondary matters that the Bible doesn't really give us a command one way or the other on. Sometimes traditions can be helpful for a time, but after a while they're no longer helpful and it's time to let them go. We can recognize they've been helpful for a time and yet they're not always going to be helpful forever. So that's the first way that Jesus challenged the comfortable Pharisees. He challenged their traditions that undermine God's word. But second, verses 14 through 23, Jesus exposed inner impurity underneath outward cleanliness. Again, uh, Jesus turns the Pharisees' question back on them. Second, question, second part of their question in verse 5 is, Why do your disciples eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said, Jesus' basic response is, But your hearts are impure. And that's a far more significant problem than whether your hands are clean. Now, you might wonder, what was the big deal about eating with unwashed hands? I mean, we read that today and we think the Pharisees must have been concerned about germs. But that's not true, because no one had invented the, no one had, no one had, the germ theory of illness was still many hundreds of years in the future. That's not how people thought about illness back then. And uh, the Pharisees' rules were not motivated by medical theories or concerns. They were concerned for what we might call ritual purity. In other words, to steer clear of anything or anyone that would call into question their reputation for being clean and pure. Uh, now you might ask, okay, what did the Bible require in terms of washings? Well, the Old Testament required two kinds of washings. Number one, priests were required to wash their hands and feet before entering the tabernacle. So that's Exodus 30, verse 19, if you want the reference for that. Second, everyone was required to bathe after contact with blood or a bodily discharge. Uh, that's Leviticus 15. That's all that the law of Moses required in terms of sort of ritual washings. But the Pharisees had added all kinds of detailed requirements and exceptions. So uh, verse 3 and 4 tell us about some of these. Everyone should wash their hands with a handful of water. Uh, that's probably what wash their hands properly. It literally is wash their hands with a fist. Probably means a handful of water before eating. If you come from the marketplace, verse 4... Uh, you need to bathe your whole body in water. It's a different word for wash in verse 4. And then you have to wash cups, pots, copper vessels, etc. Now the reason why you have to wash cups and pots and copper vessels is because all those uh, uh, things had a curved or cupped surface. So they could contain something inside them. And they thought, you know, it's possible that something would fall into the cup or pot or vessel like a dead bug. And if 
if the container contains something unclean, then now the, conta the, the container is unclean. Um, but if it was a flat surface, technically, it didn't contain anything within it. So they said a flat surface doesn't need to be washed. So again, it's not, these rules were not motivated by hygiene, right? Uh, they were motivated by, by these sort of concerns for ritual purity. They also had rules about clean and unclean foods, some of which were based in the Law of Moses, some of which were added onto it. They also had rules about who to associate with and who not to associate with. So they said, don't sit down and eat a meal with someone who has leprosy or someone who's a Samaritan or someone who's a Gentile. They're all unclean. Don't get too close to them. Now, learn about all those rules, and we might say, those Pharisees, their rules seem so ridiculous and arbitrary with such things. But consider some modern parallels. Uh, have you noticed how many diets are described in spiritual language as cleanses? Even Panera says, all of our products are clean. Now, don't get me wrong. Eating healthy will make you feel better. It can be a way to be a good steward of the body God has given you. But no matter how healthy you eat, the food you put in your mouth will not cleanse your soul. Jesus says, verse 19, as it goes into your stomach and then it goes out into the toilet. That's how it works. It doesn't cleanse your heart. Or, how much attention do we give to our physical appearance and making sure we're looking just right? Now again, don't get me wrong, our bodies are part of God's good and beautiful creation. We honor God and each other by treating our bodies with dignity. But we can easily become very aware of our external appearance and very unaware of our internal character flaws. Or what about the human impulse to keep our distance from certain kinds of people to preserve our reputation. This happens without anyone uh, telling kids to do this in almost any school. So, in almost any school, kids who want to preserve their own status and reputation avoid getting too close to kids who are perceived as uncool, weird, or having special needs. Don't get caught sitting in the lunchroom with so-and-so, otherwise, you won't be part of the in-crowd any longer. That's not much different from the Pharisees who refused to eat with lepers, Samaritans, Gentiles. There are many other modern parallels we can find. Sort of attention to outward appearance and neglecting actual internal realities. The problem that Jesus pointed out is this. We can become so focused on external cleanliness that we fail to reckon with the evil that resides in our own heart. Verse 15, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And the Pharisees should have known this, because why did they wash the cups and pots? Because of what might have fallen inside of them. Because of what they contained. And Jesus says, it's the same way with human beings. It's what's contained inside of us that pollutes us, that defiles us, not just the external stuff. 
In the Old Testament, it said this over and over. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. Or the verse that Jesus quoted from Isaiah, this people's heart is far from me. Proverbs 4, 23, guard your heart, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about our governing center, our mind, our will, our emotions, our desires, that all that that's at the center of who we are and that motivates us and that drives us. Jesus says, from within, out of the human heart, come all kinds of evils. He gives a list of 12 things in verses 21 and 22 that proceed out of the human heart. Some of them are actions like theft, murder, and adultery. Some of them are attitudes like envy and pride. You see, Jesus is saying our problem is much deeper than the Pharisees and scribes recognized. Our problem is much deeper than something that we can cleanse ourselves from by external rituals and actions. You know, sometimes when we say something, something comes out of our mouth and we know it's wrong, our immediate tendency is to blame something outside of ourselves. We blame our circumstances. I was having a bad day. I was surrounded by negative people. I didn't sleep well last night. Sometimes people even say, the devil made me do it. Sometimes they say, I have a good heart. I have a pure heart. I'm just surrounded by bad things and bad people. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says what comes out of a person is what defiles us. And in the same passage in Matthew, Jesus says what comes out of our mouth proceeds from our heart. We're like a tube of toothpaste. When we get squeezed, what comes out of us is what's in us. It exposes what's already inside us. And sometimes what we see coming out of ourselves is not pretty. And Jesus wants us to face this uncomfortable reality that our hearts are not naturally pure. C.S. Lewis wrote this in his book, Mere Christianity. He wrote, there is, no, there is one vice of which no person in the world is free, which everyone in the world hates, when they see it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they are prone to drink too much, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I've ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. The vice I am talking of is pride, and the virtue opposite to it is called humility. Is that as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is a proud person is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Jesus is exposing the Pharisees' pride. Look how clean and pure we are. We've come to evaluate you and your disciples, the Pharisees said. And Jesus challenges them. Have you reckoned with the evil in your own heart? passage ends in a troubling way with this long list of all the evils that come out of the human heart and it's a long list and if we look at that list every one of us will see ourselves in the mirror and at least one of those things in that list you see the bible says the bible the bible has bad news and good news the bad news that jesus says is that we're more flawed and sinful than we ever dared to admit and Jesus is confronting the Pharisees 
with this uncomfortable reality that they don't want to hear, probably didn't expect to hear. But you see, it's only as we accept that bad news that the good news and that the comforting words of Jesus become even more real and true to us. Because the good news is that even though we are more flawed and sinful than we ever dare to admit through Jesus, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared to hope. But Jesus came into the world not for people who are clean and pure, but Jesus came to give the cleansing that none of us could achieve for ourselves. Amen. You see, the only way we can be deeply comforted by Jesus is by letting him make us uncomfortable way down deep. And then we can see that he provides the comfort that we know we need all along. And he heals that insecurity that we feel deep inside ourselves because we know, even when we don't want to admit, we know that something's wrong. And Jesus exposes what's wrong, but he exposes us in order to heal us. He came to cleanse our hearts. He came to make us new. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We don't always want to be confronted with bad news, especially when it's about ourselves. Help us to wrestle with what we need to take to heart from this passage, from your words to the Pharisees. But help us to find that deep comfort that when we humble ourselves before you, when we acknowledge that we are naturally proud and conceited, self-centered. Lord, we tend to find all kinds of ways to look down on others in one way or another. But Lord, you want us to look up to you. Lord, we pray that you would afflict us where we are comfortable so that we can be comforted, ultimately be comforted by you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for providing the cleansing that we need. Thank you that you did not shy away from us, but you came to, to love us in the midst of all our messiness. We pray that we would find that security that comes from knowing you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to close uh, with one final hymn that talks about uh, the cleansing that Jesus came to provide. Jesus paid it all. Hymn 281. Let's stand together as we sing our closing hymn.
joining us this morning. We've come to the end of our worship service. Feel free to join us uh, through that door for coffee and refreshments if you would like. And uh, feel free to enjoy them indoors or feel free to go outdoors if you'd like to enjoy uh, the nice weather outside. Uh, feel free to um, enjoy the, the sort of grassy area on the uphill side of the church. And go with this word of blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all God's people said, Amen. Go in peace. Amen. Great message.